Good evening, everyone. My name is George Susu. I'm Rob Colucci. And I'm Emily Smith. It is our distinct pleasure to welcome you all to Villanova's annual last lecture and senior toast for the class of 2012. So we've done it. Today marks the end of our undergraduate career at Villanova, a milestone that I'm sure many of us have mixed feelings about reaching. The next year brings new challenges, new experience, and perhaps most of all, new uncertainties. So after many early mornings and late nights in Bartley, Driscoll, Mendel, Tolentine, and Sear, learning from our distinguished faculty, this is our opportunity to hear some parting words of wisdom. What better way to end our undergraduate career at Villanova than with a last lecture from one of the senior class's favorite professors? Before we introduce this afternoon's speaker, we would like to take a moment to recognize each of the five finalists on this year's ballot. All received numerous votes, and each of these individuals represents the best that Villanova has to offer. We ask that each individual stand briefly as their names are called to be recognized. Dr. Elizabeth Dowdell from the College of Nursing. Dr. Elizabeth Dowdell is an associate professor in the College of Nursing. Dr. Dowdell is an expert in the area of forensic pediatric nursing and internet safety. In September 2010, she was awarded a grant by the Department of Justice for her research on high-risk internet behaviors in adolescents. Dr. Ronald Hill is the Richard J. and Barbara Nacliero Endowed Chair for the Villanova School of Business and the former Senior Associate Dean of Intellectual Strategy. He has authored nearly 200 journal articles, book chapters, and conference papers on a variety of different topics. His research areas include restricted consumer behavior, market ethics, corporate social responsibility, and public policy. Dr. Tim Horner of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Dr. Tim Horner is an assistant professor in the Center for Peace and Justice Studies and the Villanova Center for Liberal Education. Dr. Horner teaches courses on genocide and conflict for the Center of Peace and Justice Education as well as the Augustinian Cultural Seminar, everyone's favorite class, ACS. He has been in Rwanda several times, both for his research on the 1994 genocide and with Villanova students on a summer course he developed. Dr. Louise Rousseau from the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Dr. Louise Rousseau is an associate professor in the biology department. Dr. Rousseau's research interests are in the areas of cell biology and physiology. Dr. Russo was the recipient of Villanova's 2010 Outstanding Faculty Mentor Award in recognition of her dedication to involving students in research. And lastly, Dr. Randy Weinstein from the College of Engineering. Dr. Randy Weinstein is Professor and Chair of the Chemical Engineering Department and Program Director for the Graduate Program in Sustainable Engineering. Dr. Weinstein is a past recipient of the prestigious Limbach Award for Teaching Excellence at Villanova University and a recipient of the Innovative Teaching Award. When students were asked to describe the faculty member who has the honor of delivering the last lecture, 
He was described as one of my favorite professors. I know that I speak for many others with that sentiment as well. He teaches his classes with a contagious passion for working towards social justice and coming to a better understanding of human nature, a theme that pervades his course and his research. Students cannot help but be inspired by him. In addition, he truly cares about his students as people and easily connects with them in part due to his amazing sense of humor. Ultimately, I've learned so much from him, especially how to be a critical thinker about the world around me. It is with great pleasure that we introduce to you the last lecture for the class of 2012, Dr. Tim Horner. Thanks. This is weird, man. This is weird. I, I'm very, I'm deeply troubled by the fact that you all think you're done. Because <laughs> you're not. You got finals week ahead of you. I don't know what you're thinking about. Gee, many Christmas. Lock in, folks. Finish it up. Um, this is very. This is a big honor for me. This is a huge pleasure to be up here. Um, I, you know, this is. I just did a TEDx lecture a little bit ago with somebody, and this is like way more intimidating than that because you get about three days, and then you're supposed to give your last lecture. So, and I'm trusting that the last lecture actually refers to your last lecture. This last lecture has a bad, has quite a reputation, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trusting that this is not going to be my, my last lecture, it's going to be yours. Actually, I'm trusting, I'm hoping that it's not your last lecture either, but, but anyway, that's what it is. All right, um, you know when I was preparing for this, I, it, was, it, was, it was troubling because when I sat down to think, all right, I got to be inspirational, all right, I got to say something memorable, I got to, oh, I was flooded with platitudes. You know, and you guys are heading into the, 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 the land of platitudes where you're going to be like, oh, embrace your future, you know, uh, make your future, see your future, be all you can be, take the future, blah, 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 you know, all of this stuff. It makes no sense at all. It's just everybody resorts to platitudes, and so I've, I have struggled with this. Um, you know, reach your full potential, influence people, uh, be your dream, be a servant leader, all of this stuff. But what I realized about all of this stuff, and, and in kind of my reflection, the way I think about the world, is that all of these things that people tell you what to do when you're graduating, all are kind of based on fear. They're based on amassing things to put around you that you believe will give you security and protection from being alone, from being left behind by your peers, from being forgotten, unprotected, exposed, shamed, embarrassed, made fun of, protection from being a failure. God, I'm so glad I am not you. <laughs> you. You could not pay me enough to be 21 again. There's so, you guys are heading into a world full of so much anxiety about who you are and who you be and whether you're safe or not. I, I really do, I feel for you. I'm not trying to bring you down at this point, but you know better than I do what you're heading into, right? So I'm gonna take kind of a different uh, attack on this. Uh, I'm very skeptical of our culture right now. Because the culture makes you, turns the way you see everybody into either an enemy or an ally. That you, you in either case, you, you tend to see people in transactional terms. You ask whether this person can help fulfill your goals in life, or how they can help me reach my goal, or what do they want from me, and how can I stop them from getting it. There's so many scared people in the world. Uh, and most of them, from what I can tell, have more stuff than you can shake a stick at. The more you have, the more you have to protect. 
And that's a really, that's a really strong impulse to protect yourself from all of the people that want to take things from you. It's all about agenda, right? So, so if we have this mentality that we tend to see the world through that same agenda, that, and, and every encounter with a person becomes a transaction, a transaction about what you can get or what you can give, what, what you can give so you can get back later. And this is what I'm, the one I want to talk about. It's this phenomenon that I'm proposing to you, this idea of what I'm calling, what I'm naming, a non-transactional ocular contact. Non-transactional ocular contact. Now that, that, that phrase is about 12 hours old, so I'm, I'm testing it out. <laughs> what I'm basically saying is that I want to talk to you about eye contact. I want to talk to you about looking into people's eyes and what happens when that, when that happens. Okay, I want everyone to turn to their left and make eye contact with the person next to them. <laughs> Too many of you. Too many of you. <laughs> no, but what I want you to do is I want you to turn opposite ways and I want you to, to look into the eyes of the person next to you. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> wow, what just happened? Did you hear the room? Did you feel the room? It started out with this ha 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 Everyone fell apart. Everyone fell apart. Do you know why that happened? Because you know what you were looking at? You were looking at that other person's brain. Yes. In neurological terms, the eyes have so many connections, that thick bundle of neurons that go from the back of your eyes that go straight into your brain. So thick is that connection to your brain that neurologists consider your eyes to be a part of your brain. So what these eye sockets are, these holes in your skull, are basically a place where your brain can peek out onto the world and take it in. So when we look at each other, we are actually looking at each other's brain. I know that people say the windows are the eyes to the soul, but I like to say that they're just a little chunk of your brain. <laughs> but uh, there's something else that goes on when you make eye contact with person. This eye contact is a hugely profound thing that human beings do. When we make eye contact, it takes about between a second, between a second and a two seconds, something happens. You get this moment of, wow, this is really creepy. This is really, I do this in class sometimes and I apologize if I ever did it. I don't think I did it to any of you. I think I kind of got stumbled onto this later on in life. Is that at this idea, like once you have a, once a glance at someone's eyes is no big deal, but a look is weird. <laughs> it's creepy because your body is releasing oxytocin. There is a, you get a blast of oxytocin when you maintain eye contact for more than a fraction of a sentence, a second. Oxytocin is the, is the hormone of trust. It is the thing that gets released into your body that actually makes you feel like you trust someone. When babies look at you and you look at babies and you get that blast, that connection, what you're feeling is a rush of oxytocin in your body. It is a feeling that makes you feel, a feeling of well-being, makes you feel safe, it makes you feel trusted, and it's an incredible sensation. That feeling of uncomfortableness you felt, which is universal, it works every time I do it, is something that you can't stop. It is that thing, and the reason you feel uncomfortable with it is because this is not the place to make that connection. This is not a place where you would ever anticipate having this so it feels odd and uncomfortable, but it's very telling. 
what we do when we make eye contact is we connect with people in a profound, in a profound way. That is, is what I want to kind of challenge you with. We don't have enough of this connection in our society. We don't have enough of, of what it means to make eye contact with a person. And I'm not talking about making eye contact when you're in a transactional thing. I, I, and there, and if, if we, what I want to propose to you is this idea of, of a goal. Now, I'm not telling you to succeed. I'm not telling you to go out and make a lot of money and do all that kind of stuff. You know what? I don't need to. Your culture is going to push you so hard to do that that you don't need my help with that. I'm actually going to try to pull you back and try to refocus that there, there is a way of doing a non-transactional ocular contact. And here, here's the criteria I have for you. This does not happen very often. This happens less often than you think. Okay, here's the criteria. One, it has to be in three dimensions. This has to be in person. You can't get this on Skype. You can't get this on Facebook. You can't get this on Tumblr. You can't get this on the phone. You can't get it anywhere. It has to be in person, in three dimensions. It won't work otherwise. That's first criteria. Second criteria is it has to be with someone who doesn't look like you, right? Otherwise, you're just looking in a mirror. And we all look in a mirror all the time. It has to be someone that doesn't look like you. And the third one is that it cannot have any money between you. It cannot be in a situation that is transactional. There, can't, it, there, must, there must be nothing at stake. You can't want anything from that person, and they can't want anything from you. So having, making eye contact with the guy that parks your car in valet parking, it doesn't count. Right? Over the counter at Starbucks, doesn't count. Waiter, wait, doesn't count. This gets really hard, because when you think about the people you run into in your life, and you're looking for those connections of people that have nothing between you, nothing at stake, no money, no nothing, that's very hard to find. You're going to have to shape your life around trying to find these, these opportunities because there are not very many of them. Right? It sounds simple, but it's not. So there's just the difficulty of finding relationships in your life that are non-transactional, that don't have any money involved. Right? But there's also a lot of fear, and I want to harken back to that feeling of uncomfortableness. The, the problem with this is when we make eye contact, there is fear involved. There's anxiety involved because... It would feel weird. Think of making eye contact with a homeless person on the street, but you have no intention of giving them any money. You just want to say hello. Or if you're not trying to look for a look of gratitude in their face. Or what if, they were, um, what if you saw a gay couple walking down the street to make eye contact with them both and say hello? Or what if, if you made eye contact with a person with disabilities and made eye contact and said hello? These are instances where we avoid eye contact because we don't want to be embarrassed, we don't want to be shamed, we don't want to be uncomfortable, we don't want to do the wrong thing, and so we just avoid the contact altogether. Because it takes real courage to make a non-transactional ocular contact. Right? It takes courage because it's scary. It's scary because it's personal. It's personal because we know that when we're looking out at another person, they're looking back at us. So while we might think that we're looking at them, they're looking at us, and that is vulnerable. We feel vulnerable about that. But there's an opportunity there that I, I think I don't, I want us to lean into. We see threat. We see, we, we're afraid that we might see anger. We might see uh, accusation. We might see embarrassment. And so we just keep our heads down and we keep our eyes for our safe people that we already know. But when we do this, we are missing out on something uh, profound. And that is a connection. This last weekend, I, I met for the first time one of my personal heroes, uh, General Romeo Dallaire. 
Now, if anybody knows anything about Rwanda, they know that, that General Dallaire was the UN commander uh, of a peacekeeping force in Rwanda in the last days leading up to the genocide. And he was there when it all fell apart. He watched that, cumble, uh, that country crumble into anarchy and chaos and genocide. And he has now suffered from severe PS, uh, PS, uh, PD, PS, PTSD. Um, <laughs> He, he says, you know, I go to therapy three times a week and I take nine pills a day and I'm, I'm a shred of a man from what I've seen. And he told this story about this time when he was in a convoy, a rescue convoy, and one of the happens is, is that the Inaramwe, or the rebel army group, what they would do is they would take children and they would put them out in the middle of the road and they would, make, and they would tell them that if you walk away from the road, we will shoot you. And they made them stand in the middle of the road and so when the UN convoys came down delivering things or getting people out of the country, they would be faced with a choice. Do they stop when the little child standing in the road and face a possible ambush, because that was the idea, they get the convoy to stop, and then they ambush the convoy, take everything on it, all the, all the provisions, everything. Or do they just keep going, right? Or, so this was a terrible situation, so what they would do is they would stop and immediately go into fight mode, and they all poured out of the, of the vehicles, and they had their guns out, and they're looking around for an ambush. The ambush didn't happen. So Dallaire picked up this child, and he, he was trying to talk to them, like, where are your parents? I mean, where are you? And the, the child started leading him into a village, and every house they looked into, every, they just saw bodies, corpses, dead bodies everywhere. There was not one person alive in that village. And they finally took him into the house where he said that this is his home, and there was no, all of his parents were there. They were all his brothers and sisters. The whole place was just dead. Dallaire picked up the kid and brought him back to the convoy and he put him on the, he put him on the hood of his, uh, uh, the UN carrier and he, and he said, and he had this moment where he looked into the eyes of this seven-year-old and he said, and do you know what I saw? I saw a human being. He said, I saw my seven-year-old son. And he had a moment. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. He had a moment of connection. Uh, okay, I can do this. He had a moment of connection with that person, and he saw just a human being. And he said and it changed the way he saw the, the, everything that was happening there. This wasn't about just Africans getting killed. This wasn't about war. This, wasn't, this was about human beings. And, and this, was a, this was an incredible moment for him, a turning point. He's a very sensitive guy. I really, really, really like him. But he's, he's military. What happened in that moment is that moment is um, he's very sensible that way. He's practical. Uh, but he's also, yeah. He had, a, he had that moment of contact that I was talking about. There was nothing involved except a connection between two human beings, right? That's, that's, I've had experiences like that. I'm very lucky. Um, I've had experiences like that with my children. I've had experiences that with, with my students sometimes. But I think the most profound moments I've had is I've had them in places that I never expected to have them. I, I found myself in situations where I was with survivors of the genocide, and I looked and I, I, I saw that humanity in the survivors, but I've also been in places like in a prison in Nyanza, um, where we talked to perpetrators of the genocide, killers, and I, I looked into their eyes too because they were looking at me, and I, I saw another human being there. I saw a shattered human being, I saw a human being smothered in shame, but I saw another human being. And that was, that, those, are, those were profound uh, moments. This is the same thing that happened to me when I saw this. It's the same thing that happens with newborns. It's the same thing that happened when we look into each other's eyes. There is a lot of psychology. There's a lot of philosophy behind this. Paul Lacan is a philosopher I follow who talks about the face, talks about the prof something profound that happens with the eyes. 
And what happens when we make eye contact with people is instead of that person being an other, when we make eye contact with that person, that person becomes another. Right? Thus, and and the other comes together and it becomes another human being. And that's, that is the antidote to society's fear. That right there is the antidote to the fear of the other, the fear of, the, of what's going to be taken from you. If every gaze that we make is trans, uh, transactional or suspicious, then we commit ourselves to living alone in small enclaves, always looking at, over our shoulders, always scared to connect. I've spent too much of my life in that state, and I, I am done with it. I've found something much better. Studying genocide and atrocity has ironically and oddly made me more aware of the beauty in people than of the atrocity. Because your world, when, you, when you do this, your world expands not like this, it expands like this, both ways. So to understand the frailty of, our, of humanity is also to understand the, the beauty of who we are. And those moments come are very fleeting. I can count them on one hand. That is what I want for you. But these will not come to you. These moments won't come to you. They, they, you have to go out and get them. You have to arrange your lives in, in ways that make these sort of things more likely to happen. Because they will surprise you. You don't, you don't plan them. They come to you. So when you think about how you run your life, think about what it takes for you to be in a position where you can make a non-transactional ocular contact or an ocular lock is even more uh, amazing. So you may find that your life gets much bigger than you thought. Uh, and every time you do this, you expand your, compa your capacity to take in the world and understand what it feels like to be human. That is your task, to become human. Thank you.